0: My daughter was having some sleep issues, so we thought we thought it was maybe just due to my son that was just born and just kind of her way of, of acting out. And finally, one of the doctors suggested we actually go to Yale, New Haven, to have an MRI done. I, I thought it was a complete overreaction. And I'll never forget the phone call that I got when I was uh, in, in New York City that day. My wife was hysterically crying, and I get up there uh, with the doctor who explains to me that my daughter has uh, a very large tumor on her spinal cord, has to undergo emergency surgery within the next 24 or 48 hours, and it's as serious as serious can be. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Do
1: something that even if, it fails, even if it fails, you are going to be proud of. It doesn't matter how
0: badly God, be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, with a better business. Go through
1: that. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. After a mad dash trip to New Haven, Jeff Snyder was met with the worst news imaginable. Not only did his daughter have cancer, she also needed to go into an emergency surgery within the next 24 hours. We'll come back to this moment and how it changed his life soon. But first, a bit about Jeff. Jeff is the founder of an experiential marketing company called Inspira, and now boasts campaigns for the likes of Microsoft, Jeep, National Geographic. And with brands like that behind him, you might think that Jeff always knew his unique marketing strategy was headed for success. But it didn't start there. It actually started with strawberries. I kind of want to take it back to the beginning, Um, and can you tell me about how you started picking strawberries
0: well that was uh that was my first job in my entire life uh i believe that i made two dollars and fifteen cents an hour it was one of the few places that would uh allow child labor (laughs) yes child labor that's exactly right i think i was about 13 years old at the time would have to ride my bike uh close to three miles to get there uh, $2 and 15 cents an hour, but I got the special perk of eating all the strawberries that I could. Was this a job that your parents encouraged you to get or why? It was a little bit of both. Uh, you know, I, I um, we grew up in, in very, um, middle, middle-class family. I was very into BMX and, you know, biking at that time. And, uh, my allowance only went so far. So, uh, what better way to actually put that bike to use than to, you know, drive on some like super dangerous roads to, to make, I'm pretty sure less than minimum wage, but it, yeah, it was great because it, uh, actually taught me a lot, you know, got me out and, uh, understanding sort of the labor market, putting in a hard day's worth. And then obviously being able to have an opportunity to benefit at the end when you got that paycheck,
1: taking those, those lessons from that first job, um, As you were going towards college, what were you thinking that you wanted to do with your life? And like, what were you like? Well, where were your interests guiding you?
0: Yeah, college was really interesting for me because, you know, at the time, uh, I think I really wanted to pursue Wall Street. At least that's what I thought I did, you know, from more of kind of a finance perspective. Um, And it wasn't until I actually did a summer internship that I realized I absolutely hated that industry. Uh, so internships were fantastic in that regard, I think, of not only finding what you love, but finding what you don't love.
1: Where did you start directing your, uh, your attention then if uh, Wall Street wasn't it?
0: Yeah, well, it was it, it, again like through through college. I, uh, I I was always a hustler, so um, you know even in college I was very sort of entrepreneurial in nature. I, I was a kid who would go out and you know print up T shirts and literally walk around door to door selling them. Literally, I would just kind of take you know unique spins on on maybe something that was happening in pop culture that you could kind of convert over. You know, so it was a, it was a great way to earn earn a buck. It was a great way to kind of meet a lot of new people. Um, and again, I think it probably played some part into, you know, my, my overall journey. And then really, when I came out, I I started my career selling computer systems, which was, you know, incredible training program. But again, just not really sort of uh, a passion of mine. I had a friend who I played rugby with through my four years in school, who was a bar and nightclub promoter. And I said, I love throwing parties. That's a great idea. So I ended up kind of moving down to Washington, D.C. and became a bar and nightclub promoter. And that was really sort of what got it all started. In what way? And like, what did you learn from that? Yeah. So again, it was just it was constant networking. It was constant hustle. It was finding different groups that you could pull together, really thinking through uh, exactly what type of party or event or experience that you wanted to curate for them and bringing them in. Uh, a few, uh, about a year into the job, I actually uh, was doing an event with a big alumni group from Boston. And I said, oh, I'm going to work with this, this uh, beer company called Sam Adams. And that's going to be a great partnership, just given the roots. Um, from there, I ended up meeting the leadership team, the owner of Sam Adams. They were just kind of getting their start as a quote unquote micro brew or craft brew. And uh, I ended up jumping in to become a uh, opening up sort of the Virginia and Washington, D.C. market for them. How do you think you were able
1: to to like take a maybe, you know, a collaboration and turn it into an opportunity for a job and an opportunity for your career?
0: Yeah, it was great because, you know, uh, again, I, I actually started, you know, I reached out to them. I got them involved, and at the time, the company was very, very small. They had limited uh, employees. I think they love the energy. They love the passion. Uh, they love the drive. They said, look, we're really kind of looking to expand and open up some new markets, and we could look for some you know, people like you. And, and I was like, wow, it sounded fantastic. And, uh, and then it led me to now the industry that I'm in, which is sort of this world of event and experiential marketing.
1: What does that mean, experiential marketing?
0: activate a brand in sort of unconventional channels. Uh, So it is bar and nightlife. It is event sponsorship. It is mobile marketing tours. It's it's sampling engagements. It's highly curated experiences. And for me, the, the my eyes just were wide open and I just couldn't believe that such an industry existed that you could actually think through all these different types of scenarios to understand what is so great about this particular brand and what type of experience can I create to actually be able to make brand and consumer fall in love with one another. And from there, my life changed and it's been a passion of mine ever since.
1: Leading up to 2008, like what were some of the campaigns or experiences that you did that maybe like most filled your soul? Like this is is what I want to be doing.
0: Well, let me back up. So uh, I didn't. I started my company in 2008. I got into the industry in the mid 1990s. Right. So um, my first job of actually getting in and working with the the first agency that I had signed up with was working in the beer side of the world. Go figure. Come my experience from Sam Adams. And I had a chance to work on a brand called Molson Ice. I don't know Mm -hmm. if you remember this, but Molson Ice was a beer that had a kind of a tagline and positioning from the land where Ice was born, Mm. and we actually were able to throw A concert 200 miles inside the Arctic Circle, like literally on top of the world. Wow. Private concert with the Red Hot Chili Peppers and the Violent Femmes. We flew 75 winners. Uh, We actually had a stop in the Northern Territory in Canada just to refuel. Landed in this small little airport. Once we did, we absolutely, we doubled the size of the town. That's how small and remote it was. Unbeknownst to us, that night, the winds shifted and all of these ice floats came into the bay so the plan was to actually have the concert itself on this russian icebreaker Mm -hmm. so it's actually like the ship that would be able to go through and smash the the ice caps as it kind of like went through but because (laughs) of these uh like icebergs these ice floats coming in we couldn't get the equipment on board so we quickly had to pivot as we do in events we found an old abandoned airline hangar and actually did a makeshift pipe and drape. It was an 18-inch stage. And our 75 winners had the experience of a lifetime. But the best part about it was because we were doing a lot of ship-to-shore radio to, like, all, all the changes, some of the fishing boats that were in the area heard about it. So all of a sudden, you just had these the fishermen fishing boats show up. are listening to the yeah. hot chili peppers. <laughs> Exactly. They were like, <laughs> some of them couldn't speak English, but they heard on the radio something was happening. We were like, absolutely. Come on in. <laughs>
1: That's amazing. I I think something that I'm realizing now is just how many different skill sets you have to, I guess, acquire in throwing all these events. Was there anything that you felt like you had to learn specifically for throwing an event in the Arctic Circle on a boat in the middle of the ocean?
0: Yeah, it is like number one, the devil is in the details. It is all about what if planning and you absolutely have to have grace under pressure. Mm. I mean, the reality is many things will go wrong. It's mm. basically how, you, how can you adapt? How can you pivot? How can you make it as seamless to the at least from a consumer perspective through that overall experience and be able to kind of, you know, pull that off? And honestly, that probably is what thrills me the most in this industry. Mm. Uh, I love that pressure. I love the ability to pull it off. And uh, I think at my very core There's nothing more that just gives me so much joy than seeing me deliver happiness to someone else.
1: Take me to to 2003, talking about your daughter.
0: Yeah, I had started with an agency. It was kind of a boutique firm, moved out to Connecticut to uh, open up the office for them to kind of help grow and scale it. And my wife and I moved out. I had a two-year-old daughter, Kennedy. And uh, I was all in on work, on really kind of building and and scaling this business up. And my daughter was having some sleep issues. We went to the doctor several times because she was complaining about neck pain to the best of her ability at that age. One of the doctors suggested we actually go to Yale, New Haven, to have an MRI done. And I'll never forget the phone call that I got when I was in, in New York City that day. My wife was hysterically crying and could barely get the words out that Kennedy has cancer. I immediately jumped in the car heading up from New York City to New Haven, and I just remember going through my head, okay, be strong, be strong, you've got to be there for her. And I get up there uh, with the doctor who explains to me that my daughter has a very large tumor on her spinal cord, has to undergo emergency surgery within the next 24 or 48 hours, and it's as serious as serious can be. Honestly, I lost it. Uh, I, I was a mess after that. I think it was about a seven or eight hour surgery. She came out, had done just fine. However, we noticed that when she came out, that she was she started off actually paralyzed from her chest down. They said, "Look, the surgery was a success. We got ninety for ninety five percent of the tumor out, but we'll we'll see how the recovery goes." And so the journey began. How does that
1: reframe like your goals? Because like all your your goals before this were all business related. But now when your daughter's life is affected, I imagine the priorities change.
0: It was life changing on on so many levels. I I was in a dark place, honestly, for three months. It wasn't until that Kennedy's limbs and motion started coming back a little bit that at least got me into that where I could then focus 100% on her. It was not just a dad. I was a physical therapist. I was a coach. I was a cheerleader it was all about getting her to be able to move her arms, to move her legs, to learn how to walk again. And that really, all of a sudden, to your point, where had been such a career driven mindset to really kind of have a moment of pause and and, and really kind of reshift and rebalance those uh, priorities.
1: So as she's on the recovery, what are you thinking you want to prioritize most?
0: Part of it was th- that I had to come to terms with how long is she going to be with us and how could I make the most every day uh, of this? We put her on an incredibly aggressive chemotherapy protocol for the first 18 months. We had MRIs every three months. And right prior to the MRIs, we would just do something silly. We'd fly down to Disney World or we'd go to this place just to I just wanted to make sure that that was going to be like the happiest moment before we were about to find out, you know, what was next. The first two years, we thought everything was going great. Like the tumor seemed to be shrinking. Uh, We got to the point where it seemed like she was cancer free. Three months later to go and back for her the checkup, the tumor was back to its original size. We had to go through another tumor resection, a whole new other round uh, of chemotherapy. And it was just kind of this constant cycle of ups and downs. After the second... Chemotherapy protocol came through, we ended up deciding to stop. We had a doctor, a neuro oncologist who said, you know, why don't we just wait and see? And so we took some time off. You know, she still has had a lot of physical limitations. She lost the use of her right hand below her wrist. She had to wear these plastic leg braces, had lost her hair through the chemotherapy. But the thing that was amazing to me was that through this whole journey, she just wanted to be a kid. She literally just wanted to go out and play. She was just so unbelievable in terms of her outlook. And here I was, like a coward, to be honest, where I was working for this company and I had all these ideas as to what it could be, but the agency that I was working with at the time wasn't necessarily aligned with that. And it really took this instance of just seeing her in her absolute glory that inspired me. She, she was my inspiration to kind of take that next step. And hence the name Inspira Marketing Group that led us here today.
1: So how did you take the first step?
0: Well, the first step took me a year and a half. And that was actually having enough nerve to tell my wife about my idea. You can just imagine not only being reliant on the paycheck, but the insurance bills were, you know, massive. And th- the first step for me was actually bringing this idea and notion up to her. I will tell you, she could not have been more supportive. She was absolutely amazing. She said, Jeff, you have to do this. This is, I, I could see it in your eyes. This is your dream. This is your vision. You know, you have to pursue this. I'll go back to work. I'll get insurance. and." And sure enough, she went back, uh, became a, a school teacher, allowed us to be in a position from an insurance perspective that I could at least take that first step. But I actually had a blank canvas in front of me. So now that I had permission to march forward and permission to go ahead and start that dream, it was like, well, okay, what do you want to make this company about? And it was an enlightening experience because When you're able to really put all of your dreams, all of your wishes, all on a piece of paper as to what it is that that the values that you're going to have that are going to be core to you, what is most important, emphasis on the people, being less hierarchical, purpose driven, being able to kind of give back. All of these different elements factor in into kind of creating that and then leads you to that. Okay, now let's let's go. How are we going to put this to life?
1: I love how you're thinking about that. Like you're saying, what kind of life do I want to lead rather than how can I make the most amount of money? So you are writing all of these ideas and wishes for the future of this company and the future of your, your own life. How do you actually start to uh, make some of those ideas materialize and make them concrete and like take first steps towards making a project?
0: The first year was insane. Number one, it was 2008. It was a complete meltdown. Now, of course, you didn't know that going into it. I wanted to be very, very respectful to my past company and to their clients. And as part of my separation with them, not only did I pass up, obviously, the clients that that were theirs, but I also gave them my prospects. So I started with nothing. There was a little clause in my contract, though, that said that I couldn't hire any employees for a year. And there was one woman on the team that I really wanted to be part of this company. So I said, all right, Kim, I need you to quit before I actually resign. And then as soon as I'm set up and get running, I'll I'll hire you. That was wishful thinking on my part. I mean, I'm an eternal optimist. She did quit for me. Unfortunately, it took me 13 months to be in a position to actually hire her back. I'm proud to say that she is my business partner right now and, and has been with me ever since. But talk about a leap of faith. You know, I thought it was going to be easy. I was well-connected. I had a lot of experience in the space. But you know what? I think I I was very overconfident. People just said, well, let's just see if you're going to be around in a year. All of a sudden, the financial markets take a turn. You go into a recession. Things were really tight. I cashed out my 401k. I maxed out the mortgage. It was basically beg, borrow, steal to really kind of patch our way through, picking up some small projects along the way. But year one was, was a challenge.
1: No, I'm sure. I mean, that is one of the worst times to create a business, but looking at it from the eternal optimist perspective, can't get much worse, <laughs> right? <laughs> maybe it's only up from there. Uh, so when was the, like, what was like the first project that you, that, that, that maybe signaled, all right, we're getting out of those hunger years um, and, and into something that is sustainable and can grow?
0: Yeah, the first look, the first two or three years, I would never give this up. I mean, it, it was it was absolute magic. We were obviously a small team. Uh, everybody did everything. There was no HR. There was no finance. There was, you know, we were doing everything from idea creation, the whole ideation piece, to creative resources, to procurement, to production, to staffing, to training. Uh, a lot of times, we were the ones that were out, you know, on the road. Uh, and we did have a nice, steady run, I'd say, in the first few years of probably consistently growing at about a 30% uh, growth. The, the flip side of that was to actually run a company the way that I had built that out uh, in terms of I really, really wanted to create a magical space. I wanted to create an environment, a space that people wanted to be happy and excited to come to work. For. We had a work hard, play hard mentality. We we, we invested so much in our people, uh, in our culture, in having fun along the way from doing kind of like the whole, the hard work uh, f- from day one. And really, that did not throw a lot of money to the bottom line. So getting back to what you would first said about going into the mine to make so much money, I'll, I'll never forget this. I hired an interim CFO who's now my full-time CFO. And he was coming in like one day a week. And this is maybe four or five years into the business. And he said, uh, OK, we need to have the talk. And I said, OK, what's that? He goes, time to fold up shop. You you need to just just go become a salesperson. That's what you're really good at. And I was like, what are you talking about? We're doing so great. He's like, we are not doing great. He's like, you are barely. For, he's like, for the amount of money that's coming in, for the personal guarantees that you have, you you are guaranteeing everything that that it's going to be on you. That is so much risk for someone to like make such little money. I think we just call it a day and, and move on. And I just said, Clay, trust me on this. Trust me. It's going to work out. You'll see. And sure enough, it, uh, when we actually picked started working with, with Guinness and with Diageo, that was actually the day that things had absolutely transformed.
1: Tell me about how you got Guinness.
0: Yeah. Well, this is hysterical because believe it or not, they had come originally to us just with uh with a marketing challenge. And as we as we were kind of like digging through it, I was like, oh my God, this is the same challenges that I went through when I started my career at Sam Adams. <laughs> they were like, they were a small little craft beer that was getting destroyed by the imports. Now all of a sudden, Guinness, this heritage brand, was there were, you know, 150 craft beers out there and they were actually really denting their sales. And I was like, huh. oh, I, I, know, I know this playbook. <laughs> so it really led to that where we started, we said, look, it's not a marketing issue. It's we, we're going to put, you know, boots on the ground, feet on the street to actually go there and work key accounts in the on-premise. And we're going to build and grow and scale your business. Started with 10 people and really happy to where the trajectory has gone from there. And now in addition to that, Guinness is owned by Diageo, we, we have hundreds of reps uh, for the spirit wow. side of the business as well. So what is the, like, where,
1: where is your company today and what are you most excited for?
0: Well, you know, one part we didn't even dive into yet was just the, the, the purpose aspect. Um, you know, I'll say one thing with, with dealing with Kennedy and her long run from medical conditions You know, I just really never understood that there is such a drastic difference between adult cancer and pediatric cancer. And I think the statistic is, you know, for every dollar raised of cancer research, it's like two or three cents is actually goes to pediatric cancer. And so when we did start Inspira, that was just one fundamental element that was going to be critical, where we were going to do whatever it took to help you know, provide financial resources, to build awareness, uh, to support different nonprofits and charities in that space. Over the years, uh, we had originally started my own charity. I've since then folded that up under Alex's Lemonade Stand Foundation. Part of what I really love is about doing good in the world. So not only are we doing right by our clients, are we driving their business? Are we, you know, moving their initiatives uh, forward, but at the same time, we're able to do it in a way where it's conscious capitalism and really being very sort of mission and purpose driven. And it's been so cool because the people that we're able to attract who follow that that same line of thinking and sort of mentality is is fantastic. Since we started with Alex's, that was my mission and that was the company mission. We've kind of evolved that now, which has been great. Where Uh, every year we do uh, a shark tank where the whole company breaks into like six or eight different teams. They pick one nonprofit to come up with. They develop a creative idea as to how they can support it. And we implement it as a, as company wide of all of the resources. So not just home base, all of the field as to how we can support and bring that to life. So over the years, we've done so many different initiatives around that. And it's just such a, such a awesome feeling.
1: So to, to finish off, like what is one piece of advice that you'd give your younger self, either when, uh, you were just coming out of college or when you were just starting your company, what's one piece of advice you would give that would make the, uh, the process of, of getting to where you are now a little more efficient, a little less stressful, um, and maybe a little more purposeful.
0: Yes, I uh, look. I, I I've made a lot of mistakes over the years, so let me first say that a lot of those uh, lessons learned probably wouldn't have been learned unless you had physically made those. So I think that there's a lot of good in that. Um, one of the things that uh, I lean into a lot now, I think, is uh, more from a, a peer-to-peer network. There's so much value that you can get through other people's learnings, their experiences, their successes, their failures. Um I don't think at I was really at that stage of vulnerability at the early stage. I just think I had this idea that I could do it and and really just grit, passion and hustle. Hey, that's worked in the past, that's what you need to do today. Um honestly thinking like that could we maybe wouldn't have made it. Um you know, it hadn't things fall uh, you know one different way. So um, you know, leaning into, I think, just groups of like entrepreneur organization or even YPO have been really, really phenomenal from just being able to not necessarily asking people for advice, but just really being able to hear from them, from their perspective as to what's worked, what hasn't worked and how that they had done things, you know, well it was correct or not. Um, really, I think helps when you put that into the framework, helps a lot with the decision making and I think would have probably gotten us there faster.
1: Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lin.
0: Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from
1: Irene Van Burkle,
0: Matt Fernandez,
1: Renee Cannon, Sophia Donner,
0: David Saidi,
1: Ashley Jimenez.
0: Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Cherise Tan, Harushi Kanauchi, Kristen Hagelin, Aya Cortez, and Valencia Lu. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from
1: Aiden Ashworth, Mickey
0: McCallum, Sylvie Wong,
1: and Eric Menno.
0: Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Tiffany Dang
1: and Dina Gabriel. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.